0: all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen, and putting the world to rights. The podcast that is therapy for historians. I'm public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host, fellow historian, and Garam obsessive, Kyle Glover. Hello. So, we've finally made it to episode 10, the end of series one, and although we're only going to be going away for a short time, we're leaving you now with none other than leading World War II historian, probably the most prolific author we've had on History Range so far, one half of the popular, or dare I say, rival podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and director of the Chalk Valley History Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you James Holland. James, welcome to History Rage. Oh, good evening, boys. How are you? We're, we're well, thank you. Yes, really good. <laughs> Raring to go. You feeling angry? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been working up to it all day. <laughs> So we've known you for a while now but I wonder if you just kick things off for us boy uh, telling our listeners kind of a bit about yourself your background your career and you know and the
1: festival that you're now running. Yeah sure. Well I um um yeah I've had a lot of luck my way it has to be said. I mean so so years ago I was working in publishing um, and, um, I thought, gosh, I don't really, uh, this is all well and good and everything and all very enjoyable, but I don't really want to live in London anymore. I actually want to live back in the country. I couldn't think what else to do. And, um, at the time, lots of people were, um, lots of young folk were making sort of six figure advances writing what I thought was utter tosh, sort of chick lit. So I thought, well, how hard can it be? And I discovered that actually is actually quite hard. <laughs> but I, did write, I wrote two chick lit novels, um, which are, um, wonderfully forgettable, um, and it sort of, you know, but it taught me how to sort of write a write a book length. And I thought, actually, this isn't the way for what I really should be writing about is something that I'm really interesting, interested in. And by that stage, I've been completely kind of hooked and become properly afflicted um, about that endlessly fascinating subject of the Second World War. Um, and I've oh, been busy yeah. rushing around sort of interviewing veterans and stuff. Um, and I sort of conceived this idea for a novel that was sort of love, loss and war, sort of sweeping kind of bird song meets, bride's head meets, I don't know, Battle of Britain. And, yeah. Um, and, uh, so I went off interviewing Battle of Britain veterans and, and writing this novel. And while I was doing that, I kind of discovered about the Siege of Malta um, and, fate, you know, I'd heard about sort of Faith Open Charity and the George Cross and things, but I didn't know anything about it. So I went off to try and find a book that would sort of tell me everything that I needed to know about, about the, the George Cross Island and the Siege of Malta and the Second World War. I couldn't really find one. So I, by that time, I rather sort of grandly had an agent. So I said to my agent, well, you know, what do you think about, about me doing a non-fiction book about the siege in Malta and it just so happened that he'd just been there uh, and so he was quite sort of into the whole thing so I think it was a great idea go off and write a proposal so I did um and and went to great extent and and kind of sort of wrote the best part of kind of 30,000 words on it I think um, and interviewed loads of people uh, and was completely just consumed by with excitement about the whole thing um, and I managed to sell that um give up the day job move to the country and you know here I am kind of um 20 years later yeah, yeah, <laughs> with a, yeah, with an unhealthy number of books behind me. Um, and, you know, one thing leads to another, you know, the sort of the, the the book sort of led to the opportunity of doing telly. And so then you do that. And then you know, I was living down here and we were trying to raise money for our local cricket club. And um, one of my neighbours was uh, James Hennage. He used to run Otka's book chain um and um and i said to him what about us doing a kind of arts festival down here to raise some money for our pavilion fund uh and he said look you know that's great uh, i'm really up for that but you're a historian i love history why don't we do a history festival no one else is doing and i went you know that's a really good idea <laughs> so we started our first year 2011 at the, at the brand new cricket ground with our kind of non-existent pavilion um, and we had, I think we had 12 people, 12. It was like a, a literary history festival. So we had 12 talks. We had sort of, you know, nice supper in between, tent on the cricket ground and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we had Michael Woods and various other sort of grandees. I think Mike's the only yeah. one who had been literally to every single festival. Um, and um, and it kind of grew from there. And then the next year we kind of thought, well, let's go up a bit. And I, I remember I remember that we had this little, little committee and it was all a bit kind of sort of um, Vicar of Dibliish ish really, um, sitting around the table. Yeah, as committees are. I've I've had an idea. Um, What about some living history at next year's History Festival? I remember there was just sort of absolute hilarity, and it kind of took people about five minutes to recover from their mirth uh, after this outrageous suggestion. But actually, credit where credit's due, James uh, said, do you know what? Actually, I think Jim's got a point here. Um, And I had recently seen Dave Allen. Um, do his skit as a as a um, longbowman, um, and had been mightily impressed by this. And the other person was Gary Wise being a First World War Tommy. Yeah, I thought you know what this stuff is really good, you know. And I remember I used to go and see sort of sealed knot battles when I was a kid with my brother and my dad, and, and you know they were huge affairs. They had sort of thousands of people, huge encampments and stuff, and they were really brilliant. Um, uh, and anyway, so cut a long story short, we did get a whole load of living historians in. We had a massive encampment that that second year 2012 and we've been growing it ever since and i'm a i'm a big advocate of of living history particularly when it's done properly and when it's done by people who really really care really know what they're talking about they really can bring history to life so um I'm, I'm a big advocate of it and you know obviously it's a, now a central part of the chalk valley history festival which um is we're about to have our should be our 12th year but we had a year off for covid um and, and actually if i'm brutally honest it's quite nice having a breather for one year <laughs> <laughs> uh, I,
0: I will say as much as i missed it yes not having to uh, <laughs> go and dig we're we're for, year,
1: for year 11 um in 2022 and um it's amazing how quickly it comes around but but yeah so yeah. I've, you know podcast came out of all of this as well so yeah so i've been I've, I've i've had a sort of rather charmed and blessed life really
0: well well we can take a move, moment to move on then from char charmed and blessed to um well thoroughly despised so uh, welcome to what <laughs> history rage <of laughs> is pretty much all about yeah so so james time for it to get it off your chest What is the one thing that you just wish the wider world would would just get over, would stop believing or just
1: leave alone? Uh, It's people who say things like um, the RAF was the last defence against the Nazi hordes in the Battle of Britain. You know, uh, it's this idea of tiny little force, the few kind of sort of uh, a handful of sort of square-jawed young men um, with silk scarves and flying jackets, defending us against the entire might of Nazi Germany. That's the thing that really, really bugs me. It's the Battle of Britain myth, Paul. <laughs> it's it's this idea of of kind of t- little Britain defending against the mighty Nazi Moloch. You know, that's what I can't bear. It absolutely drives me mad. You know, and, and the fact that it was a sort of a jolly close run thing, the narrow margin, all that kind of all that kind of nonsense. It's absolute bulls. Right. It's absolutely cool. I mean, the RAF absolutely whipped the Luftwaffe. I mean, it was a proper victory. And, and, and you know, the, the truth of the matter is the RAF was the first line of defence, not the last line of defence. It was the first line of defence. Uh, and And, you know... It just it's it's just it's spitfires and hurricanes and it's ignoring bomber command, and it's ignoring coastal command, And it's ignoring the fact that actually Britain is the world's biggest empire ever um, and and has unbelievable global reach. That the Navy is is the senior service for a reason. Um, It's the world's largest Navy, the world's largest merchant Navy. There's so many things in Britain's favour. And actually the teeniest bit of Britain's armed forces was its army at Dunkirk. And okay, so fine, they had to leave all their equipment behind and that was a bit of a downer. And France France was defeated. But this idea that, that that Britain was totally staring down the battle. The closest Britain got was Monday the 27th of May 1940 when everyone was having a bit of a panic on and Lord Halifax who was the most respected politician in the country was having a bit of a spat with Winston Churchill who was brand new to the job of prime minister. Only became prime minister on the 10th of May the same day that Germany n- launched its um it's blitzkrieg through into the West, it's attack on the West. And at that point it did all look a bit suspect. And everyone was a bit everyone was totally discombobulated and, and, and freaked out by what had happened on the continent. Mm. It was that it was the 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 strategic earthquake. Absolutely no question about it. And so everyone was a bit like rabbits in headlights. They just didn't know what to think, didn't know what to do. And it was all sort of ah we're all going you know this is all going out terribly wrong, you know, and, and there's panic going on. Um and, and actually what it needed was cool heads and everyone go just calm down it's okay you know, we've still got the world's largest navy, got burgeoning air force, we've got lots of, you know, we've got these huge dominions and empire forces and these huge, you know, huge access to the world's resources and the world's oceans and all this sort of stuff. We've got lots in our favour. We just need yeah. to pick up our and we'll be fine. Um, and it's not like Britain was stood alone. On that day, Monday the 27th of May, 1940, So the point I'm trying to make is had Britain kind of sued for peace then, it would have been an entirely unnecessary and self-inflicted kind of defeat. You know, it it, it was not required. Unfortunately, Churchill prevailed in his his spat with Halifax. Halifax did not resign. The the government wasn't brought down. Um, Churchill kind of won further support, got everyone behind him. And, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. But that was the closest they came. It was not from the threat of, of Adler tog and the Adler Angriff, you know, the i.e. the attack of the eagles, the attack of the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. That's what really bugs me. Grr. <laughs> Thank you. Yes.
0: Do you feel better now?
1: <laughs> yeah God, that's really good to get that off my chest. Thanks, guys. So um
0: why do people believe this? Why do we have this mythology of the great big, big last stand of the RAF fighting to the last for for
1: literally for Britain? Where does this come from? Well, I think it's a sort of a myth that sort of emerged at the time. Actually, you know, there was this very famous um, uh, cartoon in the Daily Express, which was a which was a really fine newspaper back then, and uh, was the most read paper in in the UK. It was by David Lowe, and it had this picture of this Tommy kind of sort of you, you know the, uh, standing on England, and there was the continent with a kind of big swastika all over it, over it, and and he's putting his fist to the fist to the sky, and he goes, "Very well, then, alone." Uh, And that's on the 18th of June, 1940. Um, And and I think it's sort of that myth started then, really. And I think there is this this sort of myth of the Blitz as well, this idea that we're sort of backs to the wall. And I think there is a sort of... I think it sort of gets... It's sort of, you know, you see, you see it in Dad's Army, this idea that we're all a bit bumbling, you know, the Home Guard, sort of Captain Mannering types. You know, that sort of that sort of appeals to our sort of slightly, uh, you know, we we definitely have a sort of self-deprecating sense of humour. And we have a sort of, and we have a kind of eyebrow-raised kind of sort of approach yeah. to the central authority, I think. Yeah. a kind of, you know, we generally toe the line, but we're also kind of sort of, uh, it'll all end. You know, we've got this sort of slightly kind of sort of Eeyore-ish Kind of lugubriousness when it comes to kind of expectation. Yeah, we will put up with quite a lot. Yeah, and then the, then there's all the kind of sort of you know then then there's never has been so um, so much owed to so, um by so many to say so few speech, uh, which actually does include bomber command and the whole of the RAF and Coastal Command, but is sort of taken to mean um, the fighter pilots because of course they're the visible ones because you know when you uh, look up you know you're you're sort of putting out your washing. Um, in a village in Kent, and you look up, what you see is little sort of spitfires and 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 hurricanes sort of darting about the sky um you don 't see sort of bombers going off to off to kind of germany or or to the airfields of northern France, so I suppose that 's also part of it and then there 's just the, the then there 's a the narrative of it you know and and so I blame historians and and um, Damn, and, nice. and I also blame I also blame pilots in the, in, in the Battle of Britain, you know, because they're writing their memoirs. They're being asked about their stuff. They're incredibly glamorous. And there's all sorts of sort of, well, there was me and kind of Bob and, and two others, and we were attacking a swarm of kind of, you know, of, of 300. And so this sort of perpetuates the kind of the idea that there weren't very many Spitfires and Hurricanes. And, of course, what one has to remember is that, that Bob and Charlie are one, of, you know, one and two of 12 in a squadron. Um, attacking three hundred, but what they don 't realize is all the other squadrons that are involved uh, of which equally make up hundreds um, and, and one of the one of the good things about the Battle of Britain from the RES point of view is that those air airfields are spread all over the place, which is in sharp contrast to those of uh, the fighter um, squadrons of the Luftwaffe, which because they 're on the attack and because they 've got to get across the channel before they can do any damage at all they 've all got to be as close to England as they possibly can be, which means putting them in a massive um, collection um, either in Normandy or in the Pas de Calais. Yeah, something that bomber command would find very tempting. Which bomber command do find very tempting. So tempting, in fact, that they're bombing them almost every single day, much to their annoyance. Um, and 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 so the Pas de Calais becomes a kind of target-rich environment, um, to use a modern term, in a way that fighter command airfields are not, because they're quite understandably spread all over the place but what that does mean is that you've never got more than three squadrons operating out of one sector station um uh, and when you take off you until the till certainly till kind of the, the sort of uh well into september 1940 squadrons are operating on their own and then they were operating in pairs but again once you were airborne you were operating as a squadron not in that pair so you know you as a fighter pilot thinks you're one of 12 and that you, you can be forgiven for thinking that you're the only 12 in the sky that are defending britain um and that's where that myth perpetuates from and i you know i remember very well talking to jeff and him saying jeff wellham and him saying well you know you you know i can tell you james it was a bloody close one thing and you you tell me what it's like being you know me and brian kingham flying into a formation of 200 i can tell you you felt pretty outnumbered and pretty let down by the by the air ministry and it's like yeah, but Jeff actually, you know, who else was flying that day, you know? And, and um, you know, the greatest will in the world, you know, obviously Jeff is a total legend and a lovely bloke and I loved him dearly and he was a great mate and, and you know, it's very hard to kind of disagree with someone who was actually there at the time. You know, they were there. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't have the perspective that someone does who's studying it in intimate detail 70 years later has. Yeah. With access to paperwork and documents and stuff like that yes yeah all those reasons and the blif- you know the myth of the blitz and, and and you know what you find is is people in the retelling start adopting the kind of the memes that come out of of those pictures. so the whole story becomes sort of self-perpetuating and then then you get sort of you know jigsaw puzzles with sort of you know a Spitfire kind of flying over a Messerschmitt and White Cliffs and it's constantly sunny and up above are a kind of, sort of huge swarm of kind of, I don't know, Heinkel 111s or something, you, you know, on your chocolate box or your, or your kind of sort of box of shortbread from Kent. And, and, and you know, all that does is, mm. is, again, just sort of perpetuates it. And every time someone interviews a Battle of Britain veteran, they just go, well, it was close run thing. You know, we were absolutely staring down a barrel by September. And you should go, well, you know, were you? And I would argue not, but but you know, but I'm not going to diss a Battle of Britain veteran, yeah. and I'm not going to you know, uh, and and, but I think you can kind of look at things afresh, and and I don't think you're you're offering any disrespect at all to to what they did, or 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 casting doubt on their courage, or what it felt like to be one of two Spitfires flying into formation of two hundred. Of course, I wouldn't want to do it, um, and and you know, I I am in awe of those people, but I also think it's really really important to kind of present. As objective a view of of history as he possibly can. Otherwise, what's the point yes. of being in One
0: man in that one plane. It was bloody scary and a bloody dangerous mission. But there were another hundred odd of his mates behind him that he didn't really see. Is that the gist of of the point? Yeah. All right. Well, let's let me yes. let me give you an example. Yeah, please,
1: of this. Please. Okay. Yes. So you, you you start off in in July. Um, July 1940 is when, the, you know, the channel attacks coming across. And, and this is not fighting over England at this point. This is fighting over the channel. Occasionally it's veering into southern England and, and Dowding, who is the air chief, marshal, commander in chief of fighter command, has made it absolutely clear that he's got that that his pilots are not to follow the Germans out over the sea. Fly over England because if you get shot down, then you can bail out and you can bail out over your own territory. Mm. Whereas if you, if you bail out over the sea, chances are you're going to be lost forever because you're, you're a pinprick in a very large blue wobbly yeah. thing um, and, and it's hard to kind of pick you out. So July mm. is, is scrappy and not really the main event. It's the main event doesn't really start to take place until the 13th of August, although there is a major attack uh, on the coastal areas and radar stations and Portsmouth on the 12th of August, 1940. So let's just stick with the official kind of version that the Battle of Britain starts on the tenth of July, nineteen forty, albeit that it's a scrappy sort of you know canal camp bit of it, you know the the, the Channel scraps. At that point, yeah, RAF Fighter Command has got about six hundred and forty daily aircraft that it can use at any one time. Um, the Luftwaffe has got about seven hundred plus single-engine fighters, uh, maybe three hundred twin-engine fighters. It's got about four hundred Stukas and maybe another kind of 1,400 uh, um, bombers. So on the face of it, you know, o- overwhelming. But but what you're talking about, y- y- you know, your t- the way it's sort of, the RAF was overwhelmed. Well, Fighter Command was was outnumbered, but, but not quite so outnumbered if you are, add the kind of sort of 500 bombers of Bomber Command and the kind of 400 planes of Coastal Command. Then it's more like a kind of two-to-one advantage rather than a three- or four-to-one advantage. And a two to one advantage is not a great advantage if you're attacking. Yeah. You know, the rule of thumb is three to one at least. You know, by the time Russia's, you know, the Soviet Union is doing their Red Army, doing their big attacks in 1944, it's more like 40 to one or, or certainly kind of, you know, 10 yeah. to one. Yeah. Uh, um, and so that's the kind of overwhelming kind of advantage that you really, really want. And the Germans just don't have that. By the end of the Battle of Britain, RAF Fighter Command has about 750, 760 single engine fighters. The Luftwaffe is lucky if it's got less than 200, you know, so so the, the graph has gone really gone down for the Luftwaffe and it's gone gradually but steadily up despite the losses for RAF Fighter Command. You know, in July yeah. 1940, RAF Fighter Command is 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 receiving 440 brand new Spitfires and Hurricanes. The Luftwaffe is receiving 220 Luft, um, Messerschmitt 109s, which is obviously the main opponent. That is the best the ratio gets in 1940 in terms of aircraft production. So you know the, the the Germans are producing less than half. You know so 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 first of all, British aircraft production is better than German aircraft production at that time, and and the, and, the, and the the figures are just starting to turn. The second thing is this whole thing of, of kind of sort of, you know, we were really, you know, and, and part of the myth thing, I think, is perpetuated by Dowding and Park. And even in 19, the 1960s, Park is interviewed and sort of going, well, we were really staring down the barrel. We were really worried about, about less about aircraft production. But we were worried about the number of pilots. And and, you know, we you know, we were going downhill. There's no question about it. You know, we had only 75 percent strength in our frontline squadrons by the beginning of September. But even that needs a little bit of examining, you know, because what does that mean? 75% strength. Okay, what that means is about 16 to 18 pilots rather than 22 or 24, because actually, although you would only have you'd never have more than 12 in the air at any one time, there was a kind of sort of almost two to one of, you know, doubling over of pilots and aircraft in a squadron. Yeah to get yeah. 12 airborne. And that's so that, you know, that's Dowdy was very keen on that because he didn't want people overflying, getting overexhausted mentally and physically. And he was absolutely bang on about that. So yeah. being 75% strength is still, you know, you've still got more than you need to get 12 airborne. Yeah, still operational. You're still operational all the time. And actually they find a very, very good solution, which is the ABC method, which is introduced by Park on Saturday, the 7th of September. And, and that's where you have... You categorise your squadron so that A squadrons are uh, fully experienced pilots, B squadron are sort of, you know, half experienced, half Greenhorns, and a C squadron is, you know, maybe four experienced and the rest are Greenhorns. And, and and a C squadron would be in Actington or Drem or somewhere, Pembry in Wales or somewhere where they might see a bit of action, but hardly any Um, But where they can build up, you know, people coming straight from the operational training units where they've had to cut the amount of training at the operational training unit, which is the last stage before you join a squadron where, you know, there's no shortage of fuel or anything like that. They can build up their hours, learn from the pros who've already been there and done it, got the T-shirt. And when they're sufficiently ready, then they can switch and move down to a category A or a category B. Um, which is an incredibly sensible solution to save lots of young people's lives. So the idea that, that people were going to frontline squadrons with just 15 hours in their logbooks is also absolute, total rubbish. You know, no one would be going to a frontline squadron with anything less than 150 hours, at least, in their logbook. When they're talking about joining a frontline squadron with 10 or 15 hours, that's on type, i.e. 10 or 15 hours on a Spitfire or a Hurricane, but yeah people who were being sent front into sent to a front frontline squadron with just that were, were, weren't being put into the fray i mean you know no squadron leader would send them up with that that a small amount of time because it was completely counterproductive you know they were going to be hindrances not to help <clears throat> so they would hang around the squadron until they'd got some experience the whole that whole thing was a very brief window anyway because on the 7th of september park introduced the abc classification and that solved that problem in a trice so from then on, anyone who was coming straight out of OTU with only ten or fifteen hours on their Spitfire, Hurricanes was sent straight to a Category C until they'd got their hours up. Yeah, uh, and so that whole thing that that is also just a total myth. Then you get to kind of situations, you know, where where the, they're they're completely outnumbered. I mean, throughout throughout July and particularly throughout the first three weeks of August, I mean, the, the middle weeks of August rather. You might have you had lots of different raids of Luftwaffe raids going all over the place, attacking multiple airfields at multiple times. Their idea was to try and destroy the RAF on the ground. They didn't realise that we had this huge fully coordinated air defence system. So what had worked in the past in Poland and in France and the low countries suddenly wasn't working because the whole USP of that was that you pounce when they don't know and you catch them on the ground and you destroy them on the ground. That wasn't happening because we knew when they were coming so we could get airborne. So we weren't on the ground. So you get everyone airborne, or the Spitfires are you know out of the way, and um, and that was incredibly successful. But so what you were having is was smaller raids of maybe I don't know, kind of ten or fifteen bombers escorted by you know perhaps the same again or double, um, and you'd be intercepted by variously three squadrons, something like that. So you know again, it's not it's not it's not overwhelming superiority. Not yes. until September that you get these large scale formations and they're all going to basically to London for the most part you know these huge formations of you know 100 plus 150 200 300 something like that but at that time you know okay the 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 classic example is Sunday the 15th of September which is now commemorated as Battle of Britain Day there's two major raids that day first one peaks at about midday attack on southeast London and that is a raid of um, about a hundred enemy aircraft, of which twenty-five only are Dornier 17 bombers, and the other seventy-five are escorts of Messerschmitt 109 single-engine fighters and Messerschmitt 110 double-engine fighters. To meet them are 285 Spitfires and Hurricanes. Okay, so they don't even have—you know—they're attacking with a with a with an almost yeah. three-to-one disadvantage. And then you have the biggie, which is the kind of peaking at three o'clock in the afternoon raid. Uh, which is the big one on, on south London where the big wing is 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 brought up and comes a little bit late to the battle, but it's another whole 50 Spitfires and Hurricanes attacking the Luftwaffe. Anyway, that one, that is about 300 um, enemy aircraft, of which 100 only are bombers, mixture of Heinkels, Junkers 88s and Dornier 17s, uh, and escorted by 200 fighter escorts, attacked by 335 Spitfires and Hurricanes. And of course... Again, yeah. part of the myth, and this back-to-the-wall thing, is is, is Churchill's own memoirs, because he goes to Uxbridge, he goes and sees which is headquarters of Eleven Group, which is the whole southeast of England, and he goes down down the steps, down into the bunker, down into the kind of, you know, com- control room, sees Park there, ta- chats to Park with his unlit cigar, because he, he's not allowed his cigar in there, because it will muck up the, um, you know, um, what do you call it, air filter system, uh, and he turns to Park and says, where are all the reserves? And Park looks at him and goes, there are none. And the way it's always um, translated is terribly sombre, backs to the wall. This was the last row of the dice. You know, if this wasn't going to work, we were stuffed. But we don't know what tone of voice Park says. We don't know what Park said after that.
0: He, yeah, it could have been we don't need any.
1: Yes, he, 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 he. we don't know that he didn't say, well, I've got everyone in, I, there are none. In eleven group because I've made the tactical decision to employ them all at this one moment, so we have an overwhelming attack, peppering the enemy attack. Uh, and these are the tactics that I've I've changed and I think is best suited to the moment. However, when I say there are none, I'm not including the other four hundred elsewhere in the country.
0: Um, if I can cut in with the question of just permit me clinging to the myth with my last kind of dying breath there. But yeah, I accept Britain didn't stand alone. It did stand cut off from its empire. Um, we had been unceremoniously booted out of France. You know, was there a distinct disadvantage that we faced? You know, were there any overwhelming
1: odds that we actually did beat? Um, well, I, I suppose psychologically it was was... It was a strategic earthquake that France was rolled over in, you know, effectively five days, which is what it was. Um, you know, the collapse of the MERS front w- w- was basically it. And at that point, there was n- there was no realistic chance of turning it around. And, and that was because the Germans were able to take off the French in penny packets and surround them piecemeal rather than allow the French to concentrate on mass, which is w- which is, would have been made them impregnable. And that was all about comms and all the rest of it. So that was, there was no question that that was a massive strategic earthquake. But the very nature of Britain's uh, um, being separate from the continent was was absolutely its impregnable advantage, because defending it was the world's largest navy, uh, uh, you know, which was at the same time also cutting off Germany from the outside world. So if anyone was isolated, it was Germany, yeah. despite the fact that they'd marched into kind of, you know, Scandinavia and, and the low countries and France. And... Britain still has access to the world's oceans. It still has enormous clout. You know, it is not the little Britain that that it became or has become or is about to become even more little um, in in recent times. You know, it it was the biggest empire the world has ever known in terms of kind of, you know, geographical pinkness, for want of a better phrase. Uh, And and that is a huge advantage. Uh, and, And the bottom line is, is, the Germans were trying to cow Britain into 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 an into an early peace settlement. And, and they were looking at it through the prism of their own worldview, which is we're a continental power. The army is everything. When you lose your army, that is like the biggest disaster ever. And so therefore, of course, Britain's going to come to come to terms because what else can it do? It, it's you know, Germany is completely failing to, uh, to appreciate what Britain's strategic strengths are. Germany is all about winning wars incredibly quickly um it historically it always has done it's not a, you know what it can't do is is afford yeah. a long drawn out attritional war because it's always going to lose because it, it it's stuck in the middle of europe and doesn't have access to the world's resources you know and that's why it loses in the first world war because it's 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 affecting a lightning strike in august 1914 and then gets bogged down in in you know sticky attritional warfare and loses it, you know and it's going to lose again if it doesn't win in the summer of nineteen forty, almost certainly. It's like Blitzkrieg's nothing new. Blitzkrieg's nothing new. It's 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 an age-old thing that goes all the way back beyond Frederick the Great to Frederick the Elector. I mean, it, you know, and, and and out of necessity. Whereas Britain can, as long as it holds off initially, and that means resisting an invasion attempt and keeping the Luftwaffe at bay, it's gonna be fine. Um And keeping the Luftwaffe at bay is, odds on, it's going to work because it's got the world's first fully coordinated air defence system, which no other country's ever had, and which is spectacularly efficient. Uh, And secondly, it's got the world's largest navy. Uh, And Germany doesn't have a strategic air force, which is what it needs for such an air attack. You know, the Luftwaffe is a, is what we would call a tactical air force, close air support. It is designed and has grown up organically to support ground forces. Suddenly it's been given a completely different role for which it has not trained and is not suited. It's not equipped. It doesn't have kind of, inter- you know, there's no radio connection. There's no ground controllers. Um, they're not mm-hmm. using radar. Um, all sorts of things. It just It's just not prep for. They don't have any heavy bombers. The amount of ordnance they're dropping is, is, is pathetic compared to what's going to come later on in the war. Um, they just haven't thought it through. Their intelligence on Britain is, is absolutely woeful. Um, their aircraft production is just risible. Um, you know, there is nothing about the Luftwaffe set up in 1940 that suggests it can overwhelm the RAF. Um, so that's first big problem. The second problem is they don't have any landing craft. They've never done an amphibious invasion before. They're uh, continental land power, which is unused to doing these sort of things. They haven't practised for it, haven't really trained for it, apart from sort of a bit of last minute training. Um, and they don't have any means of getting their army across, effective means, I should say, of getting their army across the channel. And they are going to get a channel which is absolutely swimming with British mines and is defended by the world's most powerful navy. You know, it's just not going to happen. The arch gambler Hitler will not risk his forces going across a channel when not, even the most basic criteria of, of launching an attack, which is to clear the skies and have air superiority, at least over the area of the invasion, has not been met and has absolutely no signs of being met. I suppose there's a case to say, I mean, this is a man,
0: you, you say the gambler who won't risk uh, invading England. This is a man that risked, Invading the Soviet
1: Union? Yes, he so risked going? But into risk invading? England? You know, he, he, you know, he's not shy of of gambling, and uh, no. uh, but he won't gamble on this one because it, because even for him, it's absolutely harebrained. It's just not going to happen. And and that's before you start talking about Co- Coastal Command and Bomber Command. You're bombing Germany, bombing Berlin, bombing. Okay, admittedly not very effectively, but they are, and they're also bombing Co- continental ports where all these. Rhine river barges are being massed you know the whole thing's that you know it it, it is it is absurd but the reason we we win the battle of Britain Britain wins the battle of Britain is because it's really good you know, it's not designed to have a big army and fight a big continental land war. So, you know, obviously there's some shortcomings there, although actually the BEF fights incredibly well, I think, really, all things considered. I mean, what do you do when you're kind of the, the, the people either side on either flank of you are pulling back? You don't have any much choice in the matter, do you? But actually where they are engaged, they, they fight very, very well and effectively and actually quite often give the Germans a bloody nose. I'm thinking about, the you know, the grenadiers um, at the ESCO. I'm thinking about the counterattack at Arras, you know, those absolutely crappy Matilda ones they still managed to you know really put the heebie-jeebies up Rommel's 7th Panzer Division so much so that the halt order can be absolutely directly go back the heritage of that halt order which is effectively what saves the BEF can go right back to the counterattacking attacking Arras on the 21st of May so actually the BEF do quite well but that's a, that's an aside you know the BEF is 10 divisions French divisions are 105 I think Belgium's 20, Dutch are 15, you know, so so the British army is tiny at that point. So although that bit doesn't go well, the rest of Britain's armed forces are actually in decent nick at that point. And, and the two bits that really count for 1940, the Navy and the R.E.F., are in, you know, they're in good fettle and, and more than prove their worth. And you cannot un- underestimate what a force multiplier it the, um, the air defence system of, of Britain is. I mean, that yeah. that just changes everything that that puts you from instead of being on a kind of massive disadvantage and okay we haven't got quite as many fighter planes defending us as the Luftwaffe have got attacking us but you, you might as well times them by three by virtue of the fact you've got the air defense system because it's just you know it's just not penetrated yeah. effectively by the Luftwaffe and out of the hundred and Thirty-eight airfields, I think it is that the RAF has in Britain in 1940. Only one is knocked out for more than 48 hours, and and okay, Biggin Hill is knocked about and all the rest of it, but it's never out of action uh, for more than a few hours at a time. Uh, and because the defences have been so carefully prepared, what you've got is um, extra um, control rooms three miles down the road, and they just sort of you know get into their humbers and off they go, and and you know out there. Yeah. They were
0: set up in tea rooms, church halls, anything yeah. that would get, give it a go, which is, which is the British improvised way. But the really.
1: idea that it's just the few and we were on, you know, we were backs to the wall and it was the last chance saloon and all this stuff. It's just not true. And actually, what should be celebrated is, is how well organised we were, uh, um, how brilliant the air defence system was um, and how absolutely thoroughly whipped the German Luftwaffe was in the Battle of Britain. Was there there any part of Operation Sea Line that actually looked like a good idea? No. (laughs) I can answer that one. My my favourite bit of the the Operation Sea Line idea is that they don't have enough motorised barges. They don't have any landing craft at all, apart from these uh, um, little rafts that they send over. These little sort of ferries, um, which can take a few things. But they they don't really have bows and they're, and they're, they're just... I can't remember what the name of them is, but they're, they're just totally ill-suited to crossing the Channel. Um, they're <laughs> on the Straits of Messina, which is about a mile and a half wide and quite sheltered, but, but, and in the Mediterranean, but won't work across the Channel at all. But then my favourite bit is that they, have, they plan to have one motorised barge towing two unmotorised barges. So how's that going to work? <laughs> now, I've sailed. That's not going to work. work at it's all. It's not going to yeah. work.
0: <laughs> and just that compared to what the Allies came up with, and invented almost from scratch to go the other way. Yeah. And that was still a hairy,
1: dangerous exactly, mission. Carl. Exactly,
0: Carl. Yeah, it's not, it's not going to happen. It's it just not,
1: can't happen. Not going to happen. Not, not on a whole millennium of Sundays. Not a chance. And, and it actually, yeah. it, I, I still think the Battle of Britain was, was one of the great strategic turning points in the Second World War, because the moment the Britons carry on fighting Hitler has to think of another solution because, with Britain fighting, he's, he's, you know, waiting in the wings as the United States. While Britain's in the war, he's in trouble because he knows that Britain's only going to get stronger. You know, it might be a little bit, Britain might mm-hmm. be a little bit behind the game in terms of kind of tank production and aircraft production and all the rest of it compared to the Luftwaffe, which started early, but, but it's soon going to be able to outproduce Germany. And then Germany's going to be stuffed. So what do you do? Well, you know, you, you, you have to go into the Soviet Union earlier than planned. I mean, it was always the German um, idea to go to the Soviet Union. That was all their, always their intention. But they go in earlier than planned and um, um, with catastrophically disastrous results. You know, so much so that I think by the end of 1941, there is absolutely no way back for the Germans, really. There's still sort of moments of jeopardy, but the, there's no chance of turning it around. Yeah, from, now, from 1941 onwards, they, the whole project is pretty
0: much doomed. It's just a question of... When, rather than when yeah,
1: the Soviet Union might still have, you know, might have folded in in the summer of 1942, but I think it's unlikely, Um, not least because most of their factories were already moved behind the Urals, and and the Germans' next kind of, you know, target was not Moscow, it was the oil fields of Baku, which they desperately needed because they didn't have enough oil, and they go down to Baku, and and you know, it's absolutely inconceivable that the Red Army wouldn't have destroyed them before the Germans got there, had the Germans threatened them. Uh, and even if the Germans had got there and the Soviet, Soviet Union had destroyed their own oil fields, the Germans had no means of actually transporting that oil. So nothing was completely pointless. I mean, yeah.
0: oh, they've got loads of little barges that yeah. they could tend yeah. up the yeah. river yeah. that they weren't using <laughs> to invade you know, Britain. I, right? I, mean, I mean,
1: things go around the, around the world in 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 1941 yeah. and 42 by by ship, just as they do today. You know, and if you don't have any shipping, you you're bit stuff, and the Germans don't have any shipping. They don't have any, you know. So I, I, can't, I just can't see how it could have could yeah. have worked. So consequently, yeah. yeah. Not defeating Britain in 1940 is the big strategic turning point of the entire war. So um, just how much is actually owed to so many by... So well, a few? huge amount is owed to the few, definitely. But I would say the few are still hmm. are, are still bomber command and coastal command as well. I think you have to think of the RAF as a, as, a, as a sort of combined package in 1940. And it's the whole effort, because not least because bomber command are going over and hitting those, that target-rich environment in Calais, uh, for example. Uh, and, and and to deal with that, because they don't have any radar and they don't have any kind of you know uh, ground control, really, they've got to keep two fighter planes back for airfield defence every time their squadron goes yeah. off, um, which is annoying for them. Um, and means there's fewer planes going over to Britain, which is a good thing. So they're also playing their part just on that alone. The German plane knocked out by a bomber from Bomber Command is just as knocked out as a Plane heroically shot down in a dogfight yeah, by yeah, fighter command. I would say so. uh, um, But there is absolutely no question that the Battle of Britain is a very visible thing. People were, look, you know, watching it playing out. It seemed incredibly scary when lots of bombers were coming over. I totally get that. And and these were the guys who were kind of sort of putting their necks on the line and, and going up and flying every single day and, and defending us. And and it it gave the country self belief. Um, it gave the world a sense of mm. you know a sort of visible sense of defiance. Lots of American observers came over and went, you know, yeehaw these plucky yank- limies and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, a- absolutely, you know, it, it was it was a vitally important battle to win. Without the people going up there and flying in the Spitfires and Hurricanes, he wouldn't have been able to do it. So, yeah, absolutely. A lot is owed. But yeah. I think also there's quite a lot yes. owed to the many yeah. as well. You know, all the ground crews the people at aircraft production, the, you know, the people running the show, uh, the, you know, the control um, the control rooms, yeah. the Observer Corps, yeah. radar, manning the radar stations and all the rest of it. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a bigger effort. But I think a huge amount is owed to you. Yeah, definitely.
0: Brilliant. So, well, I've now just finished uh, your latest book, Brothers in Arms, Moving from Planes to Tanks. Um, have to say, loved it. Um, I very, I very much like that kind of small scale where you can follow the people. Through. This is why I really like to burn. Uh, um, in fact, what's what's the next project on the uh, on the cards for you then? Because I know, well, I've seen you do about a book a year at the moment. Yeah, so I'm nominate. not gonna do that.
1: Well, what's coming next? At the moment. Um, so that's good, uh, and I'm really really enjoying that. Um, going back to that, I haven't done that any for a while, so that's been really good fun. The next book is going to be next non-fiction book is going to be West Wall, which will be. Back more sort of campaigny, I suppose, Um, and that's going to be the last sort of um, eight months of the war from the beginning of October 1944 through to May 1945, and it's just that bit that people just don't really know so much about, really. I don't think, you know, it's it's the Rhine crossings, it's it's the Bulge, um, it's it's all that kind of stuff. It's Operation Veritable. It's that big sort of murky winter. Uh, which is incredibly difficult, incredibly yeah. costly in terms of casualties, and and was absolutely brutal. But gets forgotten about a bit, really. But is still absolutely full of human drama. Mm. And of course, you've got you know you've got lots of air operations going on as well, and and so it'll be lots of stuff about the bombing. It'll be the whole effort and what's going on in Japan and blah blah blah. So it'll be a, a bit more of a big sort of sweeping one. But I but I hope it will hit the spot as well. Yeah, complete the trilogy. Excellent. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Is the is the fiction another Jack Tanner novel? Well, I've been doing Um, I've been working. I've done about 82,000 words of a novel, which I actually I, I started last summer, which I really enjoy, um, uh, which is a sort of big sweeping family saga set on a farm. But but over three generations. So it's sort of um, Downton Abbey meets Band of Brothers. I would say. I, I'd pay for to see that. Amazing, yes. Excellent. The third generation, they do all go off to war and, and unlike Downton Abbey where you basically, with a few exceptions, you basically stay at down to, you know, Highclere Castle, you you do follow the various people where they go off to the war and, you know, of course there's there's Someone who ends up in Dunkirk. There's someone who, on a ship in Norway. Yeah. There's another one who's a, a Spitfire pilot in the Battle of Britain. All this sort of stuff. So, so you know, you get the full gamut. Uh, and there's um, I've one of the daughters is a um, she's she's a, uh, a secretary to Hastings Ismay. Um, which enables me to kind of talk and explain what's going on in the war. But also I'm very interested in the kind of sort of transition in farming and, and the huge agricultural revolution that took place in the World War. You know, yes. This idea that Britain's producing 14% of its own food in 1939, but 91% by, uh, by 1945, which I think is remarkable um, and an incredible transformation of, of which the tentacles are still being felt yeah. to this day. Uh, and I felt that was worth charting yeah. as well in, in some detail. Um, yeah that's that's as much a part of the story as anything at else at the same time there is that i might have to put that on hold sort of halfway through the first one because um there is talk about doing a, um, a jack tanner and we're kind of just testing the water at the moment and they're reissuing the um the the, the old ones and giving them new packets and a makeover yeah. and all that kind of stuff um but and i have been working up a plot for for jack tanner in normandy i'll confess i haven't read any of those No, you're in for you a should. treat that's all Yes, you sure yeah for sure
0: Thank you very much, James. You know, I think we feel thoroughly told now. I mean, I'd already, uh, I'd pretty much already bought into that last stand idea before. And now I know damn
1: well better. Well, there you go. So, uh, so, well, thank you very much for inviting on. I feel very honoured.
0: Absolutely welcome. If you'd like to know more about James, then you can read the multitude of books that James has produced. You can hear him speak at uh, most of the country's leading history festivals, not least of which the Chalk Rally History Festival. You can follow him on Twitter at James1940. We'll festify. We're going to let you. We're going to let you plug that when all our listeners come and tune into. We have ways of making you talk. <laughs> but James it's been an absolute blast so thank you very much for no thank on. you for inviting me it's been great fun and, and good to see you boys well ladies and gentlemen I hope you've enjoyed this episode uh you can follow us on twitter at history rage or individually I am at paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own history rages because we want to know what you wish people would just stop believing. And you can use the hashtag History Rage. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Podchaser, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot when you do that. Thanks a lot for listening from all of us at History Rage. Thank you for staying with us through Season 1. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you in four weeks' time. Bye-bye. Cheerio.
2: Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about splash refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water...